What is up, everyone? Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. I am your host, Chris Sinclair, and I'm joined by my fellow host, Drew Garrison. We are a couple of self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience, reaching back to the days of washing dishes and cleaning pizza ovens, all the way to owning multiple businesses and selling some of the most exclusive brands in the world. Our goal is to walk you through today's most interesting alcohol headlines while sipping on some amazing drinks as we do it. Drew, what are we covering today, bud? Chris, we have a- another great lineup. We have some of our favorite topics that we've discussed over the past year with some pretty interesting updates. Uh, we're going to jump back into hard seltzers, but in a much different way than we have before. We're going to talk about some counterfeit tequila and our overall favorite subject. We're talking a brand new set of whiskey just went up for auction and this thing is going to do some major numbers. Of course, we're going to have our dope follows of the week and we have a brand new segment, everybody. We've been thinking about this for weeks. We think it's a really good idea. We're looking forward to your feedback on it. But before we get all to that. (laughs) Chris, what are you drinking? Oh, man, I am sipping on some rye whiskey tonight. I am drinking uh, J.J. Fister's uh, rye whiskey. It is uh, local here in Sacramento. Um, it is it is uh, some sourced booze. Uh, they're not distilling this whiskey on their own just yet. Uh, so they're they're getting started just like a lot of other brands do uh, with sourcing. And they are sourcing uh, this whiskey from MGP. But you know what? MGP makes really delicious uh, rye whiskey, and this is a really great pick, I think, from uh, from these guys. And uh, I'm I'm pretty stoked to be uh, to be drinking it, if I do say so myself. Well, I think that marks two weeks in a row where we've had MGP juice make an appearance on on the podcast. And again, um, we're always trying to make sure that we. Don't overlook these things, but MGP is a distillery that's located in Indiana that produces most of America's whiskey, it seems at this point, especially if you're (laughs) a young startup. Um, What's really great about their facility is that you can walk in, you can give them um, some parameters on what you want your whiskey to taste like and what you want that mash bill to be, and they make it for you. Uh, Or they have some that's already- They haven't already- (laughs) <laughs> yeah, if they haven't already, which is which is pretty crazy. And and it's it's one of those companies that's really interesting that so many different whiskeys source from them. And it's funny because I think for years people didn't want to say that MGP was making their whiskey, right? It was it was kind of like this secret. And sometimes MGP would have those things, you know, some of their whiskeys listed, but for the most part, you know, it was it was confidential. And then as more and more of these whiskeys started to win awards and were really sought after, people wanted you to know that it was MGP juice, right? It was no longer trying to hide it. And although they do produce a ton of it, they're still, it's, it's become a very, very expensive product. So the fact that JJ Fister went out there and, got as many barrels as they did of it, I think is really exciting. And I'm, I'm stoked to see what they do with it. I mean, we've talked about them before and some of their projects, like their rum project is, is one of 
still to this day is I, I can't believe how much it caught me off guard with it, how much I enjoyed it. Yeah, you you but, and I were um, both taken taking seriously aback when we tasted it. Like we didn't. Yeah, we honestly didn't believe that they made it when, <laughs> when we had it because we're like, OK, but for real, like where where did you get? This? I think, yeah, I literally said that. I was like, who made this for you? Because it will mean, you know, at the time, the only thing that had come out was just their gin and their vodka. So you can't really, you know, it's it's hard to really tell what someone's capable of with, with spirits like that. And then um, when that came out, it's just great. So that's really cool. I'm, I'm excited to see that, uh, that they have their whiskey out and it's, and I think it's, and they have a bourbon as well, but it's a high rye bourbon. If I remember correct. correctly. Yep. So, so that's very cool. Yeah. I like this. Well. I like this whiskey. It sits at uh six at uh, 50% a uh, hundred proof. You know, it's honest. It's uh, it's got just a little bit of spice on the lips but it drinks really clean so i'm I'm a big fan nice what uh what are you sipping on there drew well my journey down the rabbit hole of weird wines continues um and tonight what i have is actually something from lebanon and i know that you're a fan of this winery already chris so you're gonna you'll be excited but i'm drinking on some um some lebanese wine from chateau cassara oh hell yeah and um <laughs> yeah so this is a this is a red blend that they do and it's 60% cabernet 30% merlot 10% petite um petite verdot and this is a what i would refer to i guess as a big boy wine um as i was as i was researching it i you know of course i i popped the bottle and i'm trying to be better about decanting things and stuff like that so I was I was trying to be patient, and it and when I was looking it up, it was like I was like yeah you know you definitely like this is something that needs to be opened significantly before you drink it, which I thought was hilarious, right? Um, and then they're absolutely right about that, but then it was also something that could just like lay down for a long time. So I reached out to former Good Bottle. Pod, podcast guest um, Tesh Dial, and I was asking him, I was like, "Hey, what does this mean? What does this mean?" And he just like word vomited so much knowledge on me. It was awesome. it was it was great. It was just like message after message after message. And he was like, "Sorry, I <laughs> just kind of hit you with a lot." And I was like, "It was great. I don't remember any of it now, but yeah, that was really really great." So um, so it's a really heavy wine, and this one's from 2015, and. I now want to go buy another bottle of it so we can lay it down for a few more years and see, you know, revisit it and see what it, what it seems like. Because as much as I like it right now, I could see that maybe some settling down could still take place within it. And I had it with, we did like this healthy red sauce pasta tonight and it was fantastic with the red sauce and like the Italian sausage that I was, I was, uh, drinking and eating nice. but then i at the end of my bill we you know we for our little cheat deal that we do like i had a piece of dark chocolate terrible with the dark chocolate <laughs> i was like i was like this almost ruined the whole experience for well, me because you kind of have like this high acid slightly bitter wine um that's going with something that's also light lightweight bitter so i i don't imagine they would pair very well together they did not. So, um, <laughs> well, what so, I love now, about Chateau Cassara is like one of the um, 
the largest producers within the Bacaw Valley in, in Lebanon and um, some like serious nerdy geographical shit here. Um, but the Bacaw Valley is, is one of the oldest wine growing regions in the world. Um, it is so lush and uh, so ripe that uh, even uh, that it, it hosts the uh, sorry, it still holds um, the temple to um uh, uh oh chris come on uh <laughs> um, really, you're losing uh, us you're losing to, us to bacchus um the god the the god of wine uh, uh and and you know uh soil not soil bacchus you know good, good wine and good times you know bacchus you know that guy there you um, go um uh, okay but they, they still have the they still have the temple there um and it's like right, right up the road. I think it's like just a couple miles from from Chateau Cassara. It's one of the places I really, really want to go if I wasn't so terrified about traveling to to a war torn country. Yeah, um, you know, not to get into the weeds with that kind of stuff because I definitely don't know enough about it. But here's some fun things about the winery instead. And um, <laughs> you know, this was this was founded in 1857 by Catholic monks. And that's when they started producing producing a ton of wine. And then in 1898, they actually uncovered this these old grottos that were down in these caves that they were able to trace back to the Roman era. And that's actually where they age the wine now because it's you know Lebanon is, can be a pretty hot place, and so they were having issues with storing the wine. So these caves offered this perfect solution that um that that's where they were to put it then and then fast forward to like the 19 either like mid 60s or early 70s and the catholic church kind of put out this decree to everybody that it's like hey we want people to start liquidating their business assets right we need to get out of the business game and we need to focus on on church and stuff or or just take people's money in other ways which they still do but whatever. And um, at the time, Kassara, and, and still to this day, like they were a huge producer of wine. So um, they ended up selling to a private company that's been in, privately held for like the past, for the past 40 years. But, um, but yeah, it's a super, super rich history. There's a ton of offerings from them as well. Um, this is definitely my favorite so far. Um because it's challenging, but still like really interesting. And I'm, I'm really curious to see how this thing drinks tomorrow, you know, with a little bit more air on it. And um, yeah, just, I, uh, this, this whole wine journey for myself has been so much fun. And I really, really wish I would have done this a long time ago. Um, But I always looked at wine as like an escape from work. And so now that I'm going through my own portfolio and finding all this cool stuff. I'm like, this is the best. And I feel like I've wasted so much time. <laughs> I, I want to give a shout out to my old bosses over at, um, Casbah, uh, in here in Sacramento. Um, we serve a ton, uh, or we served, I served, uh, they currently serve, uh, Kassara wine, other Lebanese wine, Israeli wine. So if you're interested in stuff like that and you just want to like, go drink some fun dope wine that's like surprisingly nerdy and incredibly approachable and also sit in a place that is unlike any other 
business you've ever sat in, I strongly suggest you go to Casbah. Yeah, I cannot emphasize enough how how much I think people need to go to that place. If you've never been and if you're ever visiting Sacramento, Casbah is a must because I, like you said, there's no other place like it. And I remember when you told me that you were going to start picking up some shifts there and I was like, I don't know if there's a more perfect place in the world for you. <laughs> I mean, like you have your own business now and I still think that was a better fit. <laughs> Like you, know you make you make uh, all, I'll take all that the, as a compliment. Yeah, it's like you make literally all the decisions that I still think that was better. Like <laughs> <it was> just, <laughs> so that's how that's how rad um that Casbah is in Sacramento. Like people and I I miss it desperately, but they only yeah, open me too. Me too. Yeah, but I'm just like never downtown at night anymore. So yeah, and during the apocalypse too, it's like eating inside is kind of d- difficult and and yeah, um, they are very, very responsible restaurant owners. And so they take their the health of their staff incredibly seriously, as well as the health of their guests. So they don't really uh, uh, have a lot of indoor dining right now, which is, you know, one day, one day we will, but just not currently. Correct. Correct. Um, okay. Well, now I think it's time for our opinion on facts we've heard from reputable sources. So in probably the biggest twist of 2020, hard seltzers are finally slowing down, Chris. This is Didn't this think- is your big twist, huh? This is this is it for me. <laughs> this is we've, the October surprise. We've <laughs> It's not the aliens in Hawaii. It's the hard seltzer numbers finally coming down. Um, just by the fact that we're, we started this podcast around the same time that hard seltzers were really growing. And again, this story, this episode is full with kind of like retreads of things that we really love. And then also have just had to cover multiple times. Seltzers have been growing at a rate that is just insane in fact even in our last episode we were talking about how there are canning issues across the united states right now and a big contributor to that is the demand for for seltzers and the thing is is that they're still theoretically crushing and part of their success is also part of their downfall is that these numbers were so gaudy that they just couldn't maintain it um, and also we're entering, as we enter the winter, it's not really, I guess, hard seltzer season. You know what I mean? Um, so at this point they've seen, you're, a telling, dr- you're telling me that truly doesn't make a, uh, truly pumpkin spice. You know what? I was, I, I'm really happy that you got my mind bullets on that. I was going to set you up a little bit more for it, but I'm so happy that you already hit <laughs> the pumpkin spice, um, you know, offering. I'm here but, for you, buddy. Um, but I appreciate that. Yeah. So, I mean, like, like they're, they expected a downturn, but even some of the experts are like, this is pretty intense. Um, it appears that the one hit the hardest is White Claw. So hopefully they can survive. <laughs> but I mean, we covered it. We covered a story. Oh, geez. What, six, seven months ago now um, where White Claw was building um, a second plant. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah. Uh, because they, they, saw this trend growing and growing at such an exponential rate. I hope two things. I hope a 
they got it finished because I don't remember the, the the finishing date of when they, they said they'd be done with it. Um, and B, I hope I, I hope that it's not just a waste of money. I mean, because like a no one saw COVID coming, right? Like you just it wasn't it wasn't something in anybody's business prospectus or <laughs> projections or anything. So you know that's unfortunate uh, for. Well, everybody, um, but also for companies like White Claw who are investing in expansions, you know, um, and hopefully they, you know, the people who they hired still get to keep a job. I'm hoping um, if they got that far, I, you know, I don't know, but I, I just I feel bad now. <laughs> like, oh, White Claw, I, I feel kind of sad for you as a company because <laughs> you're having canning issues. COVID hits. Now it's the winter. You're seeing a downturn in your sales. Uh, also, maybe the trend is just slowing down in general, um, just because that's what trends do. Uh, you know, it's a tough time out there for you guys. Uh, if you want to come over to this side, I've got a glass of whiskey for you if you want to ever come and say hi. Yeah, I just I don't have any sympathy for hard seltzer drinkers because there's still a million out there and like you'll be fine. And just if you want to have, I mean, I've always thought of like, if you want to have like a watered down cocktail, like just drink it slower. You don't have to buy a can <laughs> and go about it that way. But that's also just how I feel about seltzers. But then um, it's not bubbly. Ugh. It's, I, I don't know what it is. It's just like. It's okay, Drew. It, it I'm, was, bubbly. It was, I'm bubbly enough for you. You're definitely that. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think again, like they're still, they're still at, a pretty significant growth over last year, right? And these numbers are inflated because you do have so many factors that are playing into it. Just the fact that it did kind of catch fire. It was a very crushable drink. And then you factor in COVID and it was just kind of like, well, I think for a lot of people, their justification was, oh, it's low in alcohol. I can drink a ton of these and not get drunk, but I'm still drinking. And it was just like watching people I care about crush hard seltzers just one after another i just was like how am i ever supposed to respect these people again and i'm just really happy that this is finally slowing down because maybe this won't be as big a part of a thanksgiving as i thought it was going to be i think that uh that there's going to be a sweet potato and marshmallow flavor (laughs) coming out real soon oh god i'm just I don't have it in me. 2020 is <laughs> taken enough. I mean, somebody has to do that though, right? Somebody has to make that. What is there? It's to coming, buddy. I mean, maybe that's our million dollar idea. Screw this podcast thing. Well, if you thought we were making a million dollars off this podcast, you were not mistaken. That's true. <laughs> In um, spirits destruction news, <laughs> there was a. Uh, I don't like how I put my title on here. I'm like really confused <laughs> by it. But um, two hundred thousand liters of counterfeit tequila were just recently destroyed, and this was actually some stuff that was recovered about two years ago and they finally just destroyed it, which that just, I mean, I have all kinds of questions about that. Like, why are you just holding on to that much 
quote unquote tequila for you to destroy it. Oh, see, and, I, I understood. I understood the the story a little bit differently. The the, the set of facts. I I understood that they were uh, the the authorities were turned on to this. Uh, maybe not turned on. Maybe that's the wrong thing to say. They were informed of said uh, forfeit tequila two years ago, and I think that they'd been building a case probably. Ah, okay. I mean, I'm still, I mean, as someone who's dealt with people who enforce alcohol laws, I bet they did get turned on by this. So (laughs) good for them. I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to leave that one alone, but yeah, I guess. Okay. So maybe it was a two year investigation into this, what they considered counterfeit tequila. And when we're talking counterfeit tequila, it's like, you know, they didn't go through all the right certifications. It wasn't lab tested. I mean, there's a variety of reasons of why they would consider it counterfeit. But the thing that really stuck out to me, and I think what was more of the, the, the emphasis here is like when they were talking to some of the officials who were enforcing this, you know, they kept talking about the, the tax loss revenue that they would have, that would have happened if like this stuff had made it to the American market or to the export market. And then at the very end, it was kind of thrown in like, oh, and by the way, it would have been dangerous as well for people. And the number that they threw out here was over 18 million pesos, which is about was, was about 880,000 um, American dollars is what would have happened, would, would have been in uncollected taxes. And so, Chris, I ask you this. Do you think the motivation is public health or lost revenue on taxes for things like this? I think both can be true. Uh, uh, we were talking pre-broadcast, and and my gut instinct says that it's probably leans closer to taxes at very least for uh, uh, as a motivating source. But I mean, uh, the the volume that was um, quoted in in that was quoted here was. At the end, it would end up being 6.5 million drinks uh, that could, you know, potentially reach people. That's that's significant. Um, there's a, a lot of people that it could harm. I think, though, based purely on my own bias of, I got to be really careful how to say this. Um, <laughs> uh, based purely on my own bias for what I know from what I've heard uh, uh, and, and talked to people who've experienced similar things, the money was probably the prevailing cause um, because that's what, that's what gets, uh, that's what gets alcohol enforcement going, you know, uh, especially in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. This was, um, this was enforced by the national tequila chamber. Yeah, so, I, I mean, I think less so on the taxes and more so probably like defending uh, along the line, same lines of defending a trademark, right? Like if you were allowed this to go out and people were to get sick or uncomfortable or whatever, you know, just have a bad experience, all of a sudden then it's bad on the tequila brand. So then you yeah. have you have additional losses on top of that that are that are not quantifiable. Yeah, and so there, um, some of the reports in this article state that this was the 23rd such destruction since 2002 carried out to protect the designation of tequila, you know, kind of to your point. 
And um, this is the fourth largest one to have taken place. There's been a total of 3.5 million liters of suspect spirit has been destroyed by both national and overseas authorities over the past 18 years. So, I mean, this is definitely something that happens, you know, somewhat regularly. I mean, that's quite a bit of quite a bit of um, product to be destroyed and multiple times. So, how do you think they destroy it? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, hmm. I like well, to th- so, I like so- to think of them sitting around like a big campfire and uh, uh, drinking some of it while throwing it into a big old flame. Yeah, I. I mean, I guess it would depend on like really what was seized. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, they're talking about they went into a like a, um, a facility and got a bunch of stuff. But did they get individual bottles? Because I've seen I remember watching a video from India where authorities had seized a bunch of counterfeit booze or like unlicensed booze and they lined it all up for gosh, I don't know. Anywhere between like 35 to 50 yards of just booze laid down on the ground. Right. And then, and this might've been just, you know, boys being boys, but then they took a steamroller and rolled over all the bottles. Oh yeah, they did. That's great. So (laughs) So that's, that's the only footage I've ever seen of alcohol being destroyed outside of, you know, like prohibition times of them taking uh, barrels of whiskey and dumping it down the sewer and stuff like yeah, that but it with an axe and what have you yeah yeah just spilling it out but um you know yeah i guess it's i like i'm i'm into the the idea of the steamroller uh, i think that's okay a, now that's, that's entertaining and comical enough for me to get behind what and, would and, if, if it was up to you how do i mean is it is it your campfire thing of how you would like this stuff to be um, dispose of, or do you have a more like go nuts? Like, what's your most ambitious alcohol destruction? Dream? I appreciate this. I I think what I would like to do is handcuff the uh, producers to a nearby tree, uh, so that way they have to see. You know, they're like their eyes are taped open, they're very Agent Orange esque. And then I take uh, uh, a a hot air balloon up. Um, very slowly and I just uh, as I want to get higher and higher I have to drop more bottles because it's too heavy uh, and so as I drop more bottles I get higher and higher and then the, the, then I just drop more bottles at a time because I'm so high that I need to be able to see them pop open um, that that would be a good time for me and can, can you go back to the handcuffing part and why that's really important to you? Oh, because they, like, they have to feel it in their soul that they did something wrong. This is me me punishing you. I got to tell you, I feel like someone who's producing quote-unquote counterfeit tequila probably isn't going to take that as hard as you think they are. <laughs> I think they might be pissed but I don't think that you're going to be taking pieces of their soul away. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Maybe someone's just learning, you know, maybe, maybe they start with counterfeits. So then they can, uh, 
they can uh, get legit, you know? Okay. And then I just want to, I want you to, in an unrelated note, if I ever need you to destroy anything, don't let me ask you. So I was just, I can't. Hey, man. <laughs> I don't have a better My mommy always said I had an overactive imagination. But Jesus Christ, that was just completely ludicrous. Um, oh my God. And in our final story and arguably our favorite topic and our listeners at home know what's probably coming. We're going to talk about a whiskey auction and the newest one is it has to do with this Japanese whiskey. Um, the Hanyo, was it Ichiro? Ichiro. Cards, card series. This is a bottle set of 54 bottles that have, that consist of multiple, like number one editions of this whiskey that uh, Ichiro had come out with years and years ago. Just awesome. And in 2019, a complete set similar to the set records with its with its selling price of $7.1 million. However, in this scenario, the owner of the whiskey set is breaking it up. And he's allowing people to buy them individually so they can complete their sets in like the ultimate good guy move of all time. But let me ask you this, Chris, do you think he will make more money collectively by splitting it up or he, or he should have sold it as one, one group. I think he'll make more money if he takes a hot air balloon and threatens to drop them. Oh God. (laughs) I mean, now you have my attention. Talk about a, a, a high stakes auction. <laughs> wow. Uh, I think, I don't know if he'll make more money um, breaking them up uh, because you run the risk of some not selling, right? I mean, that's sort of the, the well, appeal not, of yeah. selling a set. Not selling. And then you have to wonder when it comes to also to, to be fair, this is Hanyo Ichiro. Uh, it, you know, Hanyo closed their uh, shut, shut down the distillery in 2000. Um, I don't think that a single bottle will go unsold. Um, but for well, I think, I think where my mind went with it is you know, what kind of deal did the owner of the set get himself? Like, is it is it going to be a collective thing? Cause you know, the auction house has to take its piece. So is it taking a piece off of each bottle sale or did he negotiate like an overall thing? Like, Hey, you're going to take X percent, you know, and what makes more sense for him at the end of the day? You know what I mean? Sure. Or does it go down to each one? So it'd be really, really interesting to see, you know, eventually what, cause you know, we'll find out within the next couple of weeks. I don't think I, I don't think I caught the, the actual auction date. Of when it goes, um, it's and it's it not goes. whiskey auctioneer, right? It's a it's a it's a separate um, it's a separate auction. Yeah, it was one that I didn't initially recognize right off the bat. Hold on, let's pull it. Let's I think what's per- I mean I mean the the playing card series is it as of right now a fairly legendary series. 
Um, there, there are a few series that are quite as, I don't know, like I maybe not sought after. I think maybe it's just too long now. I think people, it's just sort of something of dreams <laughs> or, or lots of money. You know, if you have lots of money, you can acquire, uh, probably all of them if you want. Um, but you're not, you're almost, you will almost certainly never find a bottle of this in the wild. You know, it's been gone for 20 years, doesn't exist. Um, those, the, the exponential growth of Japanese whiskey in the last 10 years, um, also makes, makes those that, that likelihood that you're going to find something like that randomly, um, even less so. And then something like Ichiro, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a dope company. I mean, they make great juice. Um, but just the card series itself is, I mean, they're just beautiful bottles. The, the labels are just gorgeous. Yeah. So I looked it up. So it's, it's bottoms is the, is the auction house on it. And this is going to take place on uh, November 20th in Hong Kong. So we still have time to get there. Um, All right. If somebody uh, somebody wants to book us a trip, we'll go. We'll go. We'll report live. Um, we'll, we'll cover it live. I think that... You're going to have to buy me a tux too, though, probably. Deal. That's, we're in. Um, I think I think what, what this does and like is this increase in auctions that we're seeing year to year, right? Is to all the things that you just pointed out. It's like this thing is, it's becoming increasingly more rare. It's not coming back again. And the combination of the popularity of Japanese whiskey combined with the packaging. And I know you're very complimentary of the packaging and it looks great, but really the best part about this packaging is it forces you to get multiple bottles. And the reason I say that is because they all are all designed after playing cards. So you have, you know, the malt King of diamonds, the malt Jack of clubs, the malt queen of hearts and on and on and on. Right. So with that being the case at the very minimum, this is like, you know, when it comes to collectors and, and just, I think people in general, it's like you try to complete things, right? You try to complete sets. So you either want an entire suit or you want all the Queens, all the Kings, whatever the case may be. It's just, it's like this perfect storm of something that of course it gets, it, it, it sells for record numbers. Oh right? yeah. It's, it's genius. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and at the time, I mean, of course, like you're trying to, you're trying to do collectible stuff and, and we've talked about about this at length where, you know, we don't really do a whole lot of collecting because we just enjoy drinking stuff too much. But I know in the times that I have thought about it when it was like obtainable. So for example, the M&H distillery out of Israel, it's like, okay, it's early enough in the game that. I can get all the bottles and I can collect all these bottles and all these different things. But then I was like, but I enjoy drinking them too much, but I definitely had that thought. And this is, you know, and if I'm having that thought as someone who's a non collector, then, you know, the people who really do enjoy collecting things like that, they're like, well, I got to have them all. I got to have the entire 
set. I need to have the STR. I need to have the peated. I need to have the classic. I need to have the Sherry. Like it's going to, I need to stay on top of this because if I drag my feet, then I'm not going to be able to get it, you know? And when it comes to whiskey sets like this, you know, again, and because it becomes so uniform with the card series where it's like, yeah, I got the entire heart suit, right? Like that's something that drives collectors even more crazy. Cause they're like, well, I need, I need this. So, you know, if you, if these bottles are broken up and this guy has been sitting and he's been missing that queen of diamonds just to complete his set, like he's probably going to overpay for that thing. Totally. I, I also think it's a, a really cool move to, to break it up. It's sort of like a, you know, dude respects the game. <laughs> <laughs> right like totally like he, he's like uh there's gonna be other collectors out here who who are gonna want this this is let's just you know let's let them break it up too i think overall though that that runs the potential of dropping how special the complete set is um in theory because you know you might see three or four more complete sets hit uh hit again but maybe not yeah yeah, you might. I mean, it's because I mean, obviously, it's still only fifty-four bottles, right? So it's right. not like you're flooding the market with du- like tons of duplicates. You're just kind of like, hey, here's maybe maybe this completes you know completes your set. Or now, you know, because you have to assume at some point somebody drank this fucking whiskey. Someone had to have. It's like so they're not you know there's not a ton of bottles out there. Yeah, and and uh, just to give people a, a little bit of um, uh, context here. Uh, a bottle of the the Ichiro King, um, uh, malt. Sorry, the Malt Joker sold last month at Whiskey Auctioneer for about uh, thirty seven hundred pounds. So that's just one bottle. Um, you know, all by its lonesome. Obviously, these things go up in value as as they're in sets. But um, I guess that's why we're having this discussion. And now it's time for our newest segment that at least for the time being, unless we get negative backlash to it, will be called the Sexy Auction Bottle of the Week. Oh, yeah. And I, if that doesn't set the tone for this discussion, nothing will. Because <laughs> Chris has been dying to use that music for it's much so longer. Good. <laughs> I think he came in a little hot with it, so we're gonna have to we're gonna have to temper that that volume next time. But so so as we just stated, one of our favorite things to talk about is is whiskey auctions and really just auctions in general of of collectible bottles and things like that and what they end up going for and and everything that kind of goes around that. So we're like, well, you know, we always enjoy talking about these things, but what would it be cool if we could, you know, each week we'll we'll switch back and forth and one of us will pick a a bottle of whiskey or you know, spirit that that was sold at some point in auction and we're going to propose it to the other person. So in this week's, in this week's installment, the first installment, I'm going to give Chris the, the bottle that person's then going to guess uh, 
what it is, what the what the auction price was. And then the other person will come back and they'll give you some more details about it and stuff like that. So we'll kind of do like a deep dive on it. Of course, we'll include pictures of the bottle because it is a sexy bottle. We want you guys to see it. And then um, it'll be just kind of a way to indulge our little obsession with um, with auction bottles. So with all that said, Chris, to kick this thing off, what I have for you is a McAllen, appropriately, from 1926 that was bottled in 1986, which makes it a 60-year-old bottling. What do you think it sold for an auction? Fuck. So... A, it's a McAllen, right? So it's not it's not a, a small distillery. It's one that's still going, and one one that has um, worldwide uh, uh, fervor. I mean, it's the, got cachet, my friend. I mean, the, people <laughs> want it. People love fucking McAllen, man. Um, it's all over all over the world. I I personally have been invited to, I think, five or six McAllen groups on on Facebook, of which I accept because I like uh, seeing what other people nerd out about. Um, the things that you can get overseas is different than what you can get here. There's an entire series that's that's released just for um, just for duty free stores. It, it's crazy. I mean, and people literally take flights uh, just so, you know, to different countries just the way they can go through duty free and buy these bottles. It's, it's insanity. So we have that from a gallon, um, which, okay. Then 60 years bottled hundred year, almost a hundred years, um, from distillation to today. I mean, we gotta be, we gotta be looking at, at probably, Oh man. Let's see. I, I saw I saw a, a nineteen a nineteen seventy two McAllen sold at auction recently for seventy two thousand pounds. So it's got to be more than that. It, it probably significantly more than that. So I'm going to go with like one hundred fifty thousand dollars. No, no, sorry. Uh, I'm going to go with two hundred thousand dollars. Guess one more time again. Two hundred thousand dollars. Two hundred thousand dollars. Well, you did get part of that right. However, you missed a million. So it was it went in auction for 1.2 million euros. So actually in dollars, Holy it's shit. even significantly more than that. Now, obviously everybody knows about McAllen, or for the most part, you know, they're um, – all the things that Krista just said, but I want to give you some more details on this specific bottling. And that's what we're going to try to do each week when we do this sexy oxygen bottle deep dive. Okay. So as I mentioned before, this is distilled in 1926 and then put into barrels. The barrels came from um, Juarez de la Frontera in Spain. So this was an Oloroso sherry cask, which again, Oloroso Sherry um, is kind of what McAllen is known for. The difference between McAllen then and McAllen now is McAllen actually seasons their own cask with sherry. So they're no longer um, 
you know, having to wait on actual sherry companies to produce these barrels for them. So now they do that all in-house. Only 40 bottles were made it through this maturation process. So when we talk about angel share in Scotland, it is pretty low between, you know, two to 3%. And the angel share is the evaporation of the liquid um, as time goes on from, from the barrel itself. So it yielded only 40 bottles. This bottle in particular was painted by an Irish artist and it is, um, and it has like this really beautiful scene on it of kind of like in a, in like a forest. So there's like a big buck on it with some, some birds flying through as well. I'll be sure to post the pictures on our social media so you guys can see what a great looking bottle it is. But then some of the other bottles that were done, um, 12 of them had Peter Blake design were designed by him. He's really infamous for his, um, for his uh, work on the Beatles Sgt. Pepper album. He designed that cover. So you can only imagine what kind of batshit crazy that thing looked like. And then on the, and then 12 other ones were designed by Italian painter Velero Adami, which I don't really have many more notes for you on that one, but <laughs> um, you know, obviously this was a very big deal. Um, they released the first batch of them in 1989, and then they released a, then they released the second uh, run. I mean, and again, we're talking 40 total bottles. Um, the second run in 1991, um, and then since then, it's just bounced around with different auctions and stuff like that. But I'm curious. Chris, you know, given the opportunity and kind of hearing these credentials, I mean, like we're talking about a McAllen from a bygone era of McAllen, right? Completely different ways of, of doing things. Yeah. And I mean, even, even at that point in time, you're talking in, in the 1920s that there was probably direct fire stills, you know, which I don't, I don't think McAllen uses direct fire anymore. I don't well, think very pretty much I nobody think, uses. I don't think anybody uses anymore. direct fire. Yeah, yeah, unless you're in Mexico, right? And and then for our listeners at home, that what that means is is basically the difference between um, you know building a campfire and cooking some food out at a campsite as opposed to being able to control your oven, right? You want yeah. to, and, and the difference is like uh, um, is you're probably getting like harder caramelization in in the kettle at that point in time too, with the direct fire, you know, cause you have, you have hot spots. Um, so the flavor flavor, while not incredibly different would certainly be nuanced. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so yeah, you're, I mean, you're talking about a much different profile again, this is, um, you know, what McCallan is somewhat infamous for is their sherry cast maturation these are sherry casts that they didn't have their hands on before, which is completely different to what their product, you know, production is now. So if, if given the choice, okay, Chris, you have one of these 60 bottles, maybe not this individual one, because this is ridiculous, but you have one of the 12, um, that, uh, that Peter Blake did. Do you sell that bottle or do you drink that bottle? I'm going to go with a third option. Oh, okay. I'm going to pass that bottle on to my child. Oh, well, because I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if I could 
um, bring myself to open a bottle like that. Um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, and that that is hard for me to say. I mean, as given what we've said in the past, but I, I don't know if I could do that. Um, and then selling it, I'm like, well, now it's gone. It's out of my life. So I'd rather just keep it to the day I die and then give it to my kids and let them sell it or figure it out and hopefully not drink it when they're 18. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I think I would do something a little bit differently. And, and again, going with option D on this one is, you sell tickets to a tasting event and you sell like, you know, let's say a one ounce pour and you do 15 of them and then you save the other roughly 10 to 12, depending on how fine of a one ounce pour you can put out there and you invite some of your friends. So you have a bunch of rich people who want to show off, give you a bunch of money to drink your whiskey. So you still make some money. But then also get to enjoy it with your friends. Boom. I like where your head's at. Uh, uh, I don't know if I would do that, but I would definitely, uh, I would definitely join your tasting. <laughs> okay, so that's going to be our one cop out. But from now on, you have to do either A or B in that scenario. Ouch. Uh, yeah. All right. So I don't know what this looks like moving forward in terms of what the offerings are going to be. But I can't wait. Gonna... I can't wait to find some some truly sexy bottles for you, Drew. Yeah, and 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 the same the same to you, my friend. Um, I will again, everybody. I'm going to put the pictures of the bottle onto the Instagram and Facebook, uh, as well as we are going to, or if we're going to, what we're going to attempt to do is find the bottles relatively early in the week and then also post those to Instagram and let our listeners pick a price too. And if they get, if they get it right, we'll send you a sticker. I don't know. We'll figure that out. <laughs> we haven't workshopped that one enough yet. I like a sticker. That's good. Everybody likes stickers. Who doesn't want a sticker? You put it on things, show them that they're kind of yours now. That's right. So yeah. you know what, Drew, that was a really fucking sexy bottle. You know who's dope? Them over there. And now time for our tried and true segment of our dope follows of the week. This is where we tell you who to follow and why. Chris, who is your dope follow of the week? I'm going with uh, uh, my Brown and Balanced crew. Uh, Ooh, it it is uh, a group of, uh, of minority bartenders uh, started by... Uh, Awesome bartender out of I want to say Pittsburgh, uh, Jo. Uh, uh, you follow you can follow them on Instagram. They do they do events. You can follow them on Facebook. Brown and balanced. Um, it is to bring light to uh, minority bartenders because it's kind of disturbing to go into so many uh, dope bars and just see a sea of white faces. It's kind of kind of annoying uh, because it's certainly isn't uh reflective of of the reality of the world that we live in so brown and balance man they're doing good work they throw really dope events uh i have a bunch of friends who work with them and who have worked with them and who have thrown events for them over the years um and it's always a good time 
I strongly suggest following Brown and Balanced. And I think it's important to note that J.O. actually works in Chicago. Not no, that is good to know. Not Pittsburgh. My bad. <laughs> so if Sorry, you go Jay. to Pittsburgh and you're like, where is he? You're not going to him. <laughs> but I, also Brown and Balanced is, you know, for those cocktail nerds out there is a, you know, it's, it's a cocktail reference, like talking about like an old fashioned or a Manhattan or, you know, stirred, stirred drinks. Uh, so it's, it's, it's clever little play on play on words there. Yeah. And they do some really cool videos and cool interviews and stuff. And um, I know I've, participated and asked him questions at times and super, super cool dude, uh, super cool project as well. And it's just, you know, again, um, I think it's about, um, for myself, it's diversifying your, your timelines, right. Exposing yourself to, to, to new things and different experiences. And, um, you know, you're able to do that with also this common thread, which is going to be cocktails and, spirits and just overall hospitality so i think that's a great follow good job thanks buddy what about you (laughs) so mine's a little bit different this week and it is it's not an instagram account or actually they might have one but um i've had some i've had some difficulty like really tracking them down to to get a hold of them but i recently started listening to the um the Latin American history podcast and it's on Google and I know we shouldn't be promoting other podcasts, but here, here we are. And I've really, really enjoyed it so far. Um, the guy studied anthropology, I guess in school and is currently working with, um, native people in Australia, or at least at the point in the podcast that I'm at right now, because I'm, I went back in time and I'm listening to everything. But what he does is he, he opens up the podcast. He's like, you know, I want to talk more about Mesoamerica and, and stuff like that. And cause I feel like it's a topic that we don't really know a whole lot about. And my involvement in Mexican spirits and culture and stuff like that, I was like, yeah, this is, you know, of course I know some things here of, you know, the Mayans and the Aztecs and, and the Zapotec people of Oaxaca. And it's like, but I don't really know a whole lot. So it's been really good for me to listen to it because it's, it's deepened my appreciation for Mexican spirits because, you know, learning about the culture and the different things and then like knowing where certain spirits come from now that I work with them, I'm like, Oh, that's the history of, of these people and, and stuff like that. And um, it's, it's been cool because I've been able to already, in the short amount of time that I've been listening to this podcast. And then I also have a couple of books that are on the way to my house where I'm going to read more and more up on it. It's a nice change of pace because it offers me a little bit of an escape into like not always being so bogged down with booze stuff all the time. So I'm learning, but it's also, it also, it ties in to what I like and, and things like that. And it's giving me a much deeper appreciation. So, so again, it's called the Latin American history uh, podcast. It's, really, really solid. I found it on, um, on iTunes or whatever the, I, the podcast app or for Apple, I'm sure it's on a couple of different places as well, but yeah, check that one out. It's pretty, it's a pretty cool deal. That's dope. I've always, I always loved history. Um, it was my favorite subject until I had to recall dates. Uh, (laughs) That's where I always failed on my tests. I actually went into, I went into college as a history major and I remember going into my first my first test in college, and it was it was 
I went to a Catholic school and the guy who taught the class was a priest and he was just like no nonsense, very, very by the book and just knew, you know, one of those guys that forgot more in a day than what most people knew. And I remember taking the first test, walking out and me and my roommate both had that same class. And I looked, turned back to him and I just shrugged my shoulders. I was like, I have no idea what I just did. It was, <laughs> I was like, I love history, but I don't think I ever want to know this much about it. And then, so it's been, it's actually been really interesting to kind of tap back into those interests as well, like through this podcast. And then, you know, like I said, ordering some books that are on the way and I'll be sure to do some book reports on those too. But, but yeah, it, especially when you start getting into the weeds with that stuff, you're just kind of like, wait a minute, like, do I really need to know that much about this stuff? So, um, but it's great. And you know, especially in a podcast forum where I can just, you know, kind of, kind of just be present for it. It's I, I like that a lot. So definitely check it out. Uh, the Latin American history podcast. That's dope. The Good Bottle Podcast is a production of Fluid Concepts. It is edited and researched by these two fine chaps you've been listening to. Uh, music is by the Brothers Moore. They always bring more. Before we go and kill these bottles we've been drinking, we ask that if you enjoyed this episode, please smash that subscribe button and leave us a five-star review. Because, you know, we cool like that. And you can also follow us on Instagram or Facebook where you can see pictures of those dope, sexy bottles. And you can also support the podcast and our desire to run Facebook ads by checking out anchor.fm slash goodbottlepodcast. If you would like for us to cover a story or if you are with a brand that wants to be featured, please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com. And as a reminder, you can purchase these bottles that we drank on this episode at thegoodbottleshop.com. And until next time, cheers. Cheers, buddy. We're going to Pittsburgh.